to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined as always by the player himself, Benny Scala. Benny, human Lego, love the shirt. How you doing today, buddy? Well, Dan, I gotta say I'm absolutely basking my in my glory as a result of my epic, although maybe tainted victory last week under 30. So I'm now a four-time champion. I uh, just pe- bypassed Shohai Baba and Dusty Rhodes, and I'm setting my sights on uh, Harley Race. And by the way, check out the background. You're uh, you're Dandre the Giant, and I'm King Kong Benny. I love it. <laughs> and, I and love the have... no. Go ahead. The family. I love the banner there. Oh yeah, <laughs> the latest pro wrestling T-shirt. There you go. It was uh, it was nice that you didn't have to turn off my microphone to beat me this time. That was always just a t- nice touch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we always have fun with that. Um, but. Obviously, he already uh, already complimented your banner, and we'll get to talking the shirt here in a little bit. But, Benny, why don't you tell everybody who's joining us this evening? Absolutely, Dan. We have uh, an- another great guest who I know has more than his share of stories. And he's wrestled for the WWF, Jim Crockett Promotions, the UWF, uh, Florida Championship Wrestling, and many others, in addition to doing a little bit of promoting to himself, promoting by himself. And I'm um, pleased to introduce Mr. Rick Allen, also known to the wrestling world as uh, Sunny Beach. Rick, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Now we appreciate the time. You know, uh, Rick, we'll get right into it. We always uh, always start with the same question. No two answers have been the same. We love how different the answers have always been. So uh, from a purely fan perspective, uh, when did the wrestling bug bite you? I know you grew up in Florida, which is really one of the hotbeds of territory wrestling at the time. Oh, yeah. I grew up right out of cartoons, right into pro wrestling. You know, Saturday mornings, uh, championship wrestling from Florida was really big. Gordon Soley. And, uh, you know, back then it was like, uh, you know, probably nine, ten years old. when you know, I saw Dusty Rhodes on TV and I said, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I want to be a pro wrestler. I told my parents that and they just laughed at me. But, um, you know, then I started telling my friends that and everybody else. And I kept telling them that. And I guess that was the wrestling bug in me, and um, my parents took me to the shows down to Jacksonville Coliseum, and uh, you know the, the mid '70s, early '80s, and uh, I just got ate up with it. You know, Dusty Rhodes, Jack and Jerry Briscoe, Mike Graham, Steve Kern, the Sack. Um, you know, it was just such a, a great time in pro wrestling down in Florida. Sweet Brown Sugar, Barry Windham. I mean, it was such a great territory. Harley Race would come in all the time and defend his belt. The Funks, Terry and, and Dory Funk Jr. And I mean, it was just a, a great, great hotbed of wrestling. Nice. You know, it's funny. A couple of those names have popped up on and off. Uh, Steve Kern was actually just on the show a few weeks ago. So it's it's crazy how often, even all these years later, Florida still comes up. But I want to uh, follow up to that. 
Um, so you, you, you're a fan, you're watching on TV, you're going to the local shows. When did, and you said pretty much from the beginning, I'm going to be a wrestler. You, you went, um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you were an accomplished wrestler in high school, and you went to school with the daughter of wrestling legend Don Curtis. Did that help at all? Was, was he or yeah, was that connection involved in your good. wrestling journey? Well, it kind of was. Right, people that went to from Florida. Um, Hiro Matsuda was down there. He was training actually Lex Luger and Ron Simmons at the time when I first started out down there, 1985. And I would come in and I would do, you know, I was, uh, uh, you know, enhanced talent every week and I'd hand it to me. Well, and I liked it and I kept coming back for more. So they, uh, they let me work, you know, a few house shows here and there. And, uh, you know, they just set me up. Danny Miller was down there. Uh, he wrestled a lot in the Carolinas and Charlotte. And uh, he worked in the office down there as well as Chet Tharp. And uh, they took a liking to me. And they would always book me for, you know, TV tapings and stuff like that. And then a few house shows, somebody would get hurt or somebody couldn't make the card. I'd be an opening match or I would be in a battle royal or something. I'd help set up the rings with uh nelson royal uh, not nelson Royal, gordon nelson down there and uh you know i just paid my dues a lot rick so uh i you st- i think it was 85 when you started working for uh florida championship wrestling and uh now i believe that's where you met stan hansen so i grew up on long island new york we were talking before the show and i remember watching that match on tv in 1976 and i uh, saw the match with bruno when uh when bruno suffered a uh, near career ending broken neck and of course you know Hanson being a, you know he, the, I, at the time I thought it was totally 100 percent you know legit and uh, he was never one of my favorite guys but uh, you know as the years went on I, I I really I mean talking to other other people like interviewing people on the show and talking to wrestlers I've heard nothing but good things about the guy so if you could tell us about your friendship uh, with Stan Hansen and how he was able to help you in your wrestling career well, I met Stan at a couple of house shows and TV tapings down in Florida when I first started out in 1985. And then uh, in 1988, I got booked to do No Holds Barred. Uh, I had a big fight with Joe LaDuke, one of the first fight scenes in the Octagon Ring in the No Count Bar. And uh, met Stan, you know, back then uh, he was doing the, the movie with us. So we started hanging out, going to the gym, you know, when we were on the movie set, eating lunches together, hanging out, going to clubs at night and he's the first one to take me to a sushi restaurant bucket ah. so um you know and he was just so over in japan you know he was always telling me stories about japan and you know and if you ever get a chance to go to japan you gotta go and you know that's when he was working for um baba with all pro japan uh, all japan pro wrestling so you know we kept in touch and after the movie we still kept in touch and everything and uh 1991, he booked me into uh, Japan with him over there. So I went over a couple of times to Japan uh, with All Japan Pro Wrestling when Stan booked me. But we, we still keep in touch today. Uh, he comes over to my house and uh, we hang out. And uh, I'm actually going out to his house. He lives out in Grand Junction, Colorado. I'm going to go out there this year to see him after the new year sometime. So we definitely keep in touch a lot. And he's one of my dearest friends in pro wrestling. Is his eyesight really as bad as it's made out to be? <laughs> I think that's a <laughs> a, a work, but um, yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, 
he can't really see. I mean, that's why, you know, I usually drive when we go anywhere or I'll drive him around because he can't really see that great. And, um, I've never been in a car with him driving so far. So, and I've tried right. that way, but, um, <laughs> his eyesight is pretty bad though. Cause I've worked him a few times and, uh, I'm, I'm friends with him and I've got potatoed a few times with, uh, some of those clotheslines and stiff clotheslines and some, um, you know, some pretty hard punches and kicks. <laughs> The uh, the incident with Bruno now they sold it on TV as you know as a result of that uh, his clothesline where they called it the lariat I guess back then and they really put the lariat over but it was really a, a botched body slam right yeah I think he was body slamming him and I don't know if Bruno went up the right way or Stan turned him the wrong way but um, from what he told me that um, he, he when he slammed him he landed wrong on his head and neck and that's what uh, had Oof. had the in- created the injury. But it was on accident. Both of, of them, course. I spoke about it, and they, you know, there's no hard feelings or anything. They definitely, you know, talked and met up several times throughout their career after the injury, and uh, you know, there was no hard feelings. You know, as part of your, you know, risk of being a wrestler, you know, you could get injured. You know, it's a physical sport, and uh, you know, when you're got two big men, you know, over 250 pounds in there together, uh, you know, sometimes you do get hurt. So. He was one of those guys that, you know, there was a couple of guys. Patero was one of them where, like, I would not have been surprised if he beat Bruno for the championship. He he was that, you know, credible as, as a heel. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he had a motor on him. I mean, Stan, like him or not like him, I mean, this guy was in some great shape. And he would go 45 minutes to an hour every night. I mean, he, he wouldn't get blown up. He would blow you up. I mean, I thought I was in pretty good shape. And I went to Japan and – uh me and uh, Del Wilkes, Patriot, we were working against him and uh, Johnny Ace one time, and we worked about 45 minutes. And, you know, after 30 minutes, I was like huffing and puffing and, you know, <laughs> keep going, you know, one, two, three. And he's like, you know, and everybody talks about, you know, he had a motor on him. And you know, for a big man, he could really get after you. Some of those big guys are deceptive. I know Bugsy McGraw was another one that was, you know, you would never have believed it by looking at him. The guy well, was in superb condition. Steve, Dr. Death Williams, um, yeah. all those guys, you know, were, were Ron Simmons. I mean, these guys could get up and go and they were big guys and they could, you know, go a half hour, 45 minutes without blowing up. Well, look at uh, Bruno and Zabisco. I mean, I admit, I know their physiques were identical as training partners, but they tie in knots for 45 minutes and then. You know, they run literal, literally run circles around some of the younger guys towards the end of their days. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, you know, back then it was, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, that's when wrestling was, you know, in my book more, you know, legit and real. And, you know, it was still kayfabe back then, you know, people, you know, you'd ask half the people, is it real? Is it fake? You know, and you get different answers from everybody, you know, but we tried to protect the business when I was involved. Not sometimes like, get the, the, the diff, different answers from the same person, depending on like when I I was 25, I think 24 when right. I saw that the incident when when Zabisco turned on Bruno and I thought like by then I thought I, I know what's going on here. But like that was just so shocking that like my heart was in my throat when I saw that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, back then they could play with your emotions, you know, they bring you up, bring you down, you know, and back then, you know, you were telling a story and you wanted people to come back and they wanted you to come to the house shows, you know, where you could pay your money to come see everybody live. So, you know, the TV was a, a avenue to, you know, 
make us money and to, to tell the story. And then when you come to the house show, you want to see your favorite wrestler beat the hell out of the heel, you know, or, right. but, you know, and, and there's really no more storytelling these days. You know, back then you used to do your own promos, you know, you didn't have a creative team talking for you or putting words in your mouth, so to speak, you know, right. you could cut promos and, uh, you know, pretty much, uh, Work your own matches, you know. You know, they tell you who's going to go over, who wasn't going to go over, how long you're going to go for. Nowadays, everything's created for you, and you don't have any artistic. Uh, you know, you might have a little bit of say, but but pretty much with the WWE, it's like you know everything's scripted for you, and you got to stay on that script. You can't go off the script, sir. Right. I I want to circle back for a second. You you mentioned your your involvement, obviously, when you were talking about. Stan, you mentioned your involvement with No Holds Barred. I, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, and now I, I feel underprepared. That that opening scene where he's uh, the evil executives come in, and and he's standing behind them, and there's the, the first two guys you see fighting when they kind of come up with the idea of the tough guys battle. That was you. Um, you were in there, and yeah. I I wanted to uh, expand on that because the story goes, <clears throat> excuse me, that. You got a call from from Pat Patterson offering you not only offering you the part in that movie, but also a spot wrestling after that. I mean, coming up in the territories at this point, you still had some pocket territories, but WWF was really the big boy on the block already. And it, and, and the few the future looked bright. How surreal was that getting the call from from Patterson and, and knowing you know, what that next step meant? I was blindsided because I never went, went after I never mailed in any promotional material to the WWF or anything back then. I didn't even know they knew who I was, but when I was working down with the Southern Championship Wrestling from Georgia with Aaron group, Joe Pettacino was one of the commentators there. And Joe, I guess, uh, was in, uh, I guess, uh, trying to help find some of the talent for No Holds Barred because it was being filmed up in Atlanta and they, they saw me up there on TV with Southern Championship Wrestling. They go, who was this guy? And I guess I piqued their interest. Um, they they hired me right there to do No Holds Barred. They, Pat Patterson called me up, and I thought somebody was ribbing me. And I said, who's this? And I thought you were joking. You know, back then, the boys used to call up, and, you know, they'd, uh, you know, make their voices and stuff. And, you know, hey, this is Pat Patterson. Could I speak to Sandy Beach? You know, and I'm like, uh, this is Sandy. And they go, back then I was called Sandy Beach. And, um, they go, hey, we'd like you to come up to Atlanta and have part of the movie, No Holes Barred, Hulk Hogan shooting a big feature film, and we'd like you to come in and uh, do a fight scene in the movie. And I said, yeah, okay, this is Pat Patterson. Yeah, right. Who is this? And he goes, no, take down my number. If you don't believe me, call me right back. Stupid me, I took down his number and called him right back. Titan Sports, how could I help you? And I said, oh, shit. So I called him from the <laughs> He started laughing. He goes, yeah, I get that a lot. He goes, people think you're ribbing, you know, but this is a shoot. He goes, we want you to come. We're going to send you a first-class plane ticket up to Atlanta, and uh, we're going to have you do the movie. And then he goes, I'd like you to start full-time with us, uh, you know, go on the road with us, WWF, as soon as you're done filming. And I said, uh, I said, wow, is this real? And he goes, yeah, this is real. And um, I go, well, I just was going to be a police officer. I went to the police academy. I said, I don't know if I could get out of that. I said, I'm supposed to get sworn in in two weeks. And, um, you know, I just finished up the academy. So he goes, well, let me see what I could do for you. I'll call you back and uh, I'll give you a guarantee. He goes, uh, what's the police department going to pay you? And back then it was like 
$30,000 a year starting pay in the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. You get a take home. <laughs> Had, uh, you could work off-duty employment in your uniform. So I said, okay. Uh, so I lied to him. I said, oh, I'm going to make about 50000 for my first year and seventy five for my second year. So he calls me back. He goes, oh, I can get you about 150 my first year and 200 your next year. I'll Whoa. give you a two-year. Yeah, okay. So, so he goes, what's the work? Brand. He goes, uh, if you don't like the wrestling, he goes, you can go back and be a cop anytime, he says. And he was right. But I never went back. I stayed wrestling. So for 15 wow. years. That's what I did. I wrestled professional and got to see the world for free and had a great time. So I, I have before I ask my next question, I have to ask because I know that you wrestled in uh, Stampede. I, I imagine that Patterson was one of the more imitated voices in wrestling. But I, I, I did you ever get a, a call? Say, hey, 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 Rick, yeah, this is Stu. Big bastard. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, <laughs> Yeah, Stu, uh, I got to meet Stu several times, and uh, Owen's the one that got me booked up there with uh, Stampede. Okay. Um, when I left WWF, um, you know, there was still a handful of territories you could still work at. Like World Class down in Texas was still going. Um, AWA was still going a little bit. Right. Uh, um, who else? Japan, and then um, Stampede. Memphis was still going, maybe Florida for a bit. Memphis yeah. Florida, back when uh, Dusty was booking down there, I think uh, Kevin Sullivan, Dusty, and I forgot who else was down there doing And, the of book. course, Crockett for a while. And Crockett was still a little bit, but not much. But Memphis was still going strong, right. too. Right. I don't know if the Fullers and Armstrongs hung it up yet or not, but they were doing some – you know, there's a lot of independence going around in Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. At the, I mean, I, I was getting booked all over the place, so – even in New York afterwards, Tommy D was booking shows, Universal Wrestling Superstars. I worked with him a lot. Dennis Carluzzo, uh, Bob Raskin, um, uh, Rob Rob Rustin with the IWA. I worked with him uh, back when he was on Sports Channel America. So, I mean, I got to, you know, work a ton of independent shows. I got to work a few of the good territories, Florida, Georgia, um, you know, Southern Championship. Stampede, Japan. I worked for Global uh, a couple of times. I did yeah, that's right. Every Global. So I mean, I got to travel a lot. You know, I went to Puerto Rico. Uh, now for Jose, uh, you know, Gonzalez and Carlos Colon. I went. There was a, a, a upstart promotion going down there. Hercules Ayala, um, Jose Luis Rivera, Jose Estrada. Um, TNT, Juan Rivera, uh, they were running opposition to Carlos and them down there, Hurricane Castillo. So I went down there a couple of times, me and Jeff Gaylord, uh, we tagged down there in uh, Puerto Rico a few times. In I remember that. yeah. So um, we, we had, I had a pretty good run, you know, going all over the world. Um, you know, and I picked and choose a lot of places where I wanted to go, and that was a good thing because I didn't really, you know, that anybody really, you know, I guess, um, take advantage of me or my career. If you want to call it a career. I mean, I thought oh, it was a career. So Rick, you made your WWF debut according to wrestlingdata.com Um, on August 14th, 1988, you defeated the gladiator. And I, I didn't realize that was a uh, Ricky Hunter. I remember Ricky Hunter very well. I remember him only from the WWF, but I didn't realize he had to had such a huge pedigree. Uh, before that, as both a, a singles and a tag team champion, actually in uh, numerous territories, 
And I believe you were with them for about, maybe about a year and a half. How was it? What was it like working for them, both from a wrestling and, and a non-wrestling perspective? Well, with the WWF, I mean, we were like rock stars out there. I mean, we were running two, three shows a night, small towns, midtown, you know, mid-sized arenas, and then the big venues, you know. And if you were on like a Hogan show or a Andre or Macho show, you know, you were making really good money, you know. Some weeks I would make 5000 a week. Sometimes I make 10000 a week, depending wow. on where we were at. And it was all percentage of the gates, you know, mostly. You know, and you get a draw when you're on the road, you know, to pay your uh, trans, you know, we had to pay for our own hotel rooms, our own rental cars and stuff, but they would fly us from town to town if we were on the big shows and stuff. But, you know, when I first started out, you know, it was like me, Barry Horowitz and you know, a couple of us in a car, you know, driving down the road or Nikolai Volkov or me and the conquistadors. So, you know, we'd all split trans to save money and um you know we'd all share hotel rooms you know we double up you know and hotel rooms and split the rooms so you know the the main thing for me is you know when i first started out don curtis and a bunch of people would tell me you know uh it's not about how much money you make it's about how much money you save and uh, stan hansen told me that too so it was just, you know, like it resonated in my mind, you know, I could stay at the $300 a night Marriott's or something and or I could stay at the $39 a night Motel 6. And you know, all you're, all you're going to do is sleep anyway, right? I mean, sleep yep. and take a shower and, and clean your wrestling gear and get ready for the next night. You know, a lot of times we come back from a show, you'd wash your spandex and stuff in the sink you'd hang them up and to dry. Next morning, you fold everything up, put it back in your, you know. Um, you know, you blow dry it sometimes with a blow dryer to dry it off because a lot of times we couldn't really find hotels or they might not have had a laundry mat or something. So you do your laundry a couple of times a week, you know, different towns or whatever. And, um, you know, it was just, you know, like you're traveling and you got you got to get real close with the guys you were working with, too. You know, some of the guys, Barry Horowitz, I'm still friends with today. <coughs> um, Tony Atlas, Haku. You know, guys I, I used to ride with, you know, and a lot of guys that I've traveled with are dead now. You know, Hercules Hernandez. I mean, I used to travel with him a lot. Um, tons of guys. Um, perfect, so you you were, uh, what, maybe 25, Rick, 25, 26, and you're making five grand a week. That I mean, that's almost it's in, in 1988. That was some really Believe great it, money. And I mean, it would have been. I'm sorry. I was 24 years old when I did No Holds Barred. And then wow. uh, I, I turned uh, 25 when I, uh, in September of uh, in that year um, when I first started out. So, I mean, yeah, 24, 25 years old when I first started with the WWE. And we're going to get more into the, the fiscal management thing. But that's I mean, I give you all the credit in the world. I mean, at that age to maybe making that kind of insane money and to have the the. Uh, yeah, I guess the wisdom to, to not blow it all. I mean, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but that I'm, I'm sure you're very, very glad that you had some, you know, some good advice early on in your, in your career. Well, the good thing was, you know, I would sit back in the locker rooms. I'd listen to old timers and then I'd listen to some of the younger guys, you know, Oh, I just bought a new Mercedes or I just got a new Corvette and, you know, uh, I'm on my second wife or I'm getting divorced or I got to pay child support payments. I would hear all these horror stories in the locker room. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy's making 10 times more than I'm making. And he's having a hard time making ends right. meet. You know, he's having to pay off a big house. He's having to pay off all the car payments. He's got divorced. 
he's got child support he's paying he's paying private school for his kids and i'm like and then they're going out you know spending you know 500 600 bucks a night at the bars or some guys were doing recreational drugs buying cocaine and pills and everything crazy i'm like looking at all these guys and i'm like why are you blowing your your life on all this stuff you know some guys flat out junkies you know but they would they could you know a lot of guys were taking pills because they were hurt and it would mask some of the injuries and give them some relief guys would take pills to go to bed at night they'd take pills to wake up in the morning i mean i'm, I'm so glad i never got involved in any of that stuff yeah i mean uh, just just in the last what two weeks we've seen rick flair launch a brand of chicken wings and and make an <laughs> announcement for he, he a uh he, he made made an announcement for a, a marketing campaign related to a Ric Flair themed crypto coin. I mean, he, I, I don't I don't foresee either or the Woo energy drink. And I hate to sound like I'm picking on him. It's just all this happens recently. I'd hate to to say that I don't think he's doing that if Ric Flair had some more money in his pocket. I can only imagine how much money he made. Well, you know, like Ric Flair would go out, he'd buy the whole the whole bar around of drinks. You know, yeah, he was making top dollar and he was a top guy for a lot of years. But when does it end? I mean, he has what three or four failed marriages. I think five. Bragging guy, and he's got you know, you know, kids. You know that he probably had to pay child support for growing up too. And then you know now he's got you know, uh, he probably has some bad investments along the way. People probably took advantage of him, and and now he's got to do this stuff just to you know survive and make right. ends. I'm sure he's probably still got a ton of money left. I would hope. Uh, he I, I would bet not, but who who knows? Yeah, I still, I still think that one of the last interviews I saw him give, uh, Roddy Piper talked about being caught in the like a death loop. You know, he 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 had so little money left, he had to wrestle again to to kind of catch up. But then you you the wear and tear of wrestling is more medical bills. Then you have to keep wrestling to to catch up to where you were when you were wrestling, and it's just a cycle. And that's yeah. what he he I forget exactly what he what he what he was saying, but his whole point was he's like, I've got money put aside that I won't get to touch till I'm 65. And he's like, I'm not going to live to see 65. And, you know, it's it's sad how many I mean, Benny, we, where it's 100 episode 156, Rick, we must have heard 100 times horror stories, not of uh, now of our guests, people they know, people they work with who, of guys making. I mean, like you said, 150 grand. 1988 is almost 400,000 today's money and yeah. you know guys making 5 6 5 $10,000 a week spending 5 $10,000 a week retire you know they they have their last match and they got 50 bucks in the bank well Dino Bravo god rest his soul i mean this guy had a big house up in Canada i mean uh, you know he made a lot of money you know over 20 years you know in the business and he made a ton of money, but then, you know, once he got out of wrestling, he didn't know what else to do. And that, that goes with a lot of these guys, you know, you got to have a plan when you retire. I mean, I had a plan. I started my own security company and uh, you know, I knew I couldn't wrestle forever. Uh, when I wasn't wrestling, I was going to college and taking, uh, you know, criminology courses at John Jay college in Manhattan. I got a security management degree. So I, I knew what I wanted to do and I had a plan and I had, you know, stuff to fall back on because I, I used to bounce when I was going through college and I used to I made a lot of good friends in the industry and in nightclub industry when I wasn't wrestling in New York when I was living here or if I was working part-time I would be bouncing or I would be doing movie sets or bodyguard work in the city 
So, I mean, I, I made a ton of money doing that. And that's when I started my company. And I invested in the properties when I made money. And, and I, I knew, you know, I couldn't wrestle forever. But a lot of these guys, you know, I hate to see guys. And I don't want to sound, you know, conceited or anything. But I go to some of these, like, the big events and some of these autograph shows and stuff like that. And I see the same guys. And I only go maybe once or twice a year to some of these things. Some of these guys go to every show out there all over the country. And I just stay local. And I don't really do a lot of stuff unless somebody asks me or if somebody wants to pay me to come in, I'll do it. But I'm not going to spend my money to, to you know go sign autographs. I mean, I'd rather give somebody my autograph if they want it than to charge them 20 bucks sure. for it. Right. You know? The way I was brought up, I, you know, if, if your fans respect you enough, they're going to come up and ask for your autograph. I'm not going to sell it to them, you know, and, and belittle myself. Yeah. You know, if they're yeah. my fan and I'm going to, you know, take care of them. You know, you you supported me. That's why I'm here. That's why I have nice things now that I retired because of the fans. You know, a lot of them. But some guys don't look at it like that. They want to get squeeze every penny out of people. And you Especially see this- some of the. Some of the prices, I mean, we talked about it on the show, what, a week or two ago, some of the prices you see people having charging at conventions today. It's it's crazy. But it was, I, go ahead. Event, I'm charging like $50, $100 for like a meet and greet, you know, to take your picture or have an item signed. Or I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, and like I'll go there and I'll charge maybe 10 bucks a picture just, you know, where it's affordable, where it co- covers whatever I've paid for the 8 by 10 Yeah. Then, you know, I don't care. I mean, I'd rather just give it away, you know, but that's, yep. that's, I mean, not everybody's like me, but I mean, I see the same guys, you know, and they're struggling because they didn't save their money. And a lot of these guys were top, top guys, main event at Madison Square Garden. And then they're, you know, having to sign pictures for 20, 30 bucks, whatever. And then hopefully they'll have enough money to pay their rent this month, you know? Yeah. That's you what, know, I- I'm sorry. I was at a. Uh, I mean, cut you off. I was at a Comic Con here uh, in Virginia. I don't know how many years ago? I'm trying to think now. It was um, when that documentary came out, resurrecting the snake about Jake Roberts and DDP working together to clean him up and all. He, right. Jake Roberts, was doing promotional work for it, and he was charging twenty bucks for for the picture autograph. And he even said when because he was talking with his fans, he was real. Like, you know, you could tell he was excited that there were still you know that they still had all these fans all these years later. And he was saying, like, he could have charged more, but, you know, I'm here for you guys because the, between the crowdfunding and the popularity of the movie, like, I'm alive because my fans still care about me. Sure. Literally, he he felt he owed his lives to the fans, and that's why it was only 20 bucks. And I thought that was – you could see – you could tell the difference. I've been to some events where it's, you know, ra- random celebrity number three, $500 for a picture autograph. Like, I, I no one is worth that, period. No, I mean, I, I went to this uh, thing. I got hired to do security. Uh, one of my former friends is a big promoter and gets a lot of, like, athletes and stuff. But uh, he brought in Mike of the Beach Boys in, uh, um, to a – I think it was, like, a chiller thing over in New Jersey, like chiller theater or whatever. And um, he made a ton of money. I mean, just uh, – you know, Mike Love must have signed over a thousand, maybe two thousand autographs that weekend. It was like a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon. And I was bodyguarding Mike for three days, him and his wife, driving him back and forth to the event, taking him, you know, back and forth, picking him up in the morning, 
driving him back home to the hotel he was staying at. So I was with him the whole time he was signing next to him so nobody would get too close and all that. So, um, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, and here's Mike Love. He's made millions of dollars, you know, in the entertainment, you know, music industry. And he, he's, you know, he does, hasn't really been out there. And this was like the first time he's really done one of these big signings. And he made a ton of money. And, you know, here's, it's just going to show you how much money's out there for some of these guys that don't do it on a regular basis. But some of these guys that do it on a regular basis, it's like they just sell themselves short. And, it, you know, people don't want to see them anymore. You know, they keep coming to these shows and it's the same people, you know. Right. How many times are you going to get like a Tony Atlas's autograph or a, a honky tonk man or a Jake Roberts? You know, it's the same people at the same shows. Yeah. <coughs> I mean, not not, you know, trying to belittle them. I'm friends with all of them. But, um, you know, some of these guys, they have to do it while, while they made top dollar in this industry. And, um, you know, some of the guys that, that really need the help, there's no help for them. You know, we never had any you know, like insurance programs, you know, or we didn't have a retirement fund, you know, with the WWE or any other wrestling groups, you know, nobody thought about saving money for a rainy day. So, I mean, I, I started saving, I would save over half my paycheck. I would put half in savings and I would live off half, you know, and that's how I, I was brought up, you know, try to save for a rainy day. So I, I got lucky. I mean, I, I didn't make the most money in the wrestling business, but I didn't, you know, make the least either. But, you know, it's all what you want to do with your money. I mean, I've, I've had a good life and my family's had a good life. But, you know, I, I could have, you know, could have went either way if I got into drugs and alcohol or if I spent money on these expensive hotel rooms or driving a Lincoln Town cars instead of a regular full size car. Both cars get you to the same place. No. Same thing with the hotels. All you're doing is sleeping at them. So instead of spending 300, I spent $39, split it two ways. So it was like 20 bucks each. And I kept the $300, you know, the 280 in my pocket. Nice. Uh, kind of go want to go back. Uh, we were talking before uh, you're wrestling. It's 87, 88. You're in the, you're in the WWF and you're, but you're splitting your time between the WWF and Jim Crockett this is summer of 88. You were wrestling at Sandy Beach in the WWF, like you mentioned, and in Jim Crockett under your real name. Kind of a two-part question here. One, how did that happen, splitting your time? I, uh, were contracts less concrete back then? And two, you've mentioned it a few times. We, we said it in the intro. No. The name Sandy oh, uh, Beach, where did that come from? Sandy Beach, I thought it up down in Florida. There was a guy that was a DJ, I guess, or a bodybuilder down there, and he wasn't doing nothing with it. I mean, he was a bodybuilder. His name was Scott Latimer. Um, he used the name Sandy Beach down there, but it wasn't like, you know, he was a wrestler or nothing like that. Then I started using him when I went to WWF because it was like a surf name. And I tried to do it like a surfer gimmick type uh, gimmick. I wanted to do a surf gimmick, but they never really gave me a, a gimmick with the WWF. I just came out there in the spandex and the blonde hair and tried to get over. But um Nowadays, everybody has, you know, with WWE or whatever. But um, back then, you know, I never wrestled with uh, Crockett Promotions, so I don't know where you guys got all that from. Um, I, I never wrestled under Rick Allen, only in championship wrestling from Florida when I first started out. I used my real name, Rick Allen, down there. But 
then Sandy Beach. I just started being from Jacksonville, Florida, and I was always hanging out at the beaches. That's where the, the name came. So Sandy you weren't Beach. in in then, in '88. You didn't wrestle outside the WWF. I only wrestled WWF in '88 and '89. Never wrestled WCW. Or oh. I never wrestled Yeah, we. We use uh, it's uh, called WrestlingData.com, and we use it for pretty much all of our research. And usually, it's fairly accurate. But I guess this time, they maybe they they might have mistaken you with somebody else. I was going to say it could be we had uh, we had Randy Hogan on the show uh, underneath. You know, uh, we're actually doing a special on uh, specifically on underneath guys. And one of the questions that came up is he's credited as a different underneath talent in WWF at the same time. And he, right. I'd, I'd have to look it up, but he actually mentioned there was a moment where Randy Hogan was wrestling on WCW at the exact same time that the person, the records have claimed he was, was on WWF in a different city. So I, I, maybe it's another one of those incidents, Benny, where you just have yeah. so, so somebody yeah. from the history books decided that, that Rick Allen was uh, this, this underneath guy that worked for a little while. Yeah, I was an underneath guy, but I never worked with uh, Crockett. Well, I, I didn't mean it that way. I meant sometimes we, we've had we've had experiences in the past where somebody randomly, you know, get, gets a gets it in their head that you were, you know, I don't know, masked guy number seventeen, and then all his matches go under your database, even though that was never you in the first place. Right, that happens too. It's interesting. Yep. So, Rick, this is this is the, the question that I waited for. Uh, one of my favorite wrestlers in the '80s was uh, Canada's greatest greatest athlete, Iron Iron Mike Sharp. And uh, I actually wrote a, a soon to be released a story about Mike for the the Pro Wrestling Stories website. Um, by all accounts, he was both very unique and very quirky. Uh, did you ever work with him? And do you have any Iron Mike stories? Well, I tagged with Mike a lot of times. Uh, me and Mike worked a lot together. Um, a lot of shows we would tag, you know, I worked with him against the Rockers a couple of times. Um, I, I forgot who else we worked against, maybe Powers of Pain or somebody, but um, we worked a lot because we were two big guys and they would put us in with some big guys, you know, to make the matches look better and stuff. So, I, I, you know, I worked against a ton of big guys, but Mike Sharp, I mean, he was a great, great guy, one of the most friendliest, cleanest people you ever want to meet. But he was quirky. He would, you know, take a shower a long time. He was like really, really clean. He'd carry his own toilet paper with him everywhere he went. Oh, jeez. Um, he, he was just, um, he was uh, way out there. But, you know, I've heard some stories like Stan Hansen told me a story like they were in the Omni one night or something or somewhere. And um, he got locked in an arena. They closed up the arena, I think it was. And he was still in the shower. So they reopened it to get him out because oh, they locked all the doors and I think an alarm went off. But he got locked in the arena one night because he was still in the shower because he, <laughs> he was one of those. But um, I booked him on a few of my shows whenever I would do shows in the tri-state area. I would always try to have Mike Sharp on it. And he would always work for me. And he was just a pleasure to do business with. I mean, he would whatever you'd ask him to do, he would do it. And he was just a friendly kind of guy. I've traveled with him a couple of times, but... He, you know, he was set in his ways, you know, he was, you know, his own, his own guy. And a lot of times he would travel by himself because people were, you know, they don't, <laughs> they don't want to ride with him. Oh, geez. 
An another guy, though, uh, that had a huge pedigree before he came to WWF. I mean, I when I did the story on him, I did a lot of research, and uh, he had a really good career in the territories. His dad, I guess, his dad and his uncle were a, a great tag team in the 50s, the Sharp right. Brothers. I believe yeah. his uncle was actually in the Canadian Olympic team. Um, but he was, I mean, if you look at, um, he won titles in Canada. He won, um, actually beat Killer Khan, I think once or twice for titles when he worked in uh, Mid-South. I mean, so he was like over. And when he first came to, uh, to WWF, they were really giving him kind of a push. And yeah. I think he actually wrestled uh, Backlund in the, I believe in the Gardner in Philadelphia and, and a very competitive title match. But then after that, then they, then it was the, uh, you know, they gave him that wimp gimmick and, uh, Pretty much, he just slid right down the card. So, I mean, I always enjoyed watching him work. I thought he was he was great in the ring. But he, I just, I mean, I've always, I've heard so many stories about him with you know just being, you know, a very peculiar peculiar kind of guy. So, well, like you said, he was kind of quirky, but he was set in his own ways. You know, he was very family orientated. You know, he took care of his mother and her later years and stuff. And he was another guy that died way too soon. And he wasn't a partier. He wasn't, you know, in any, uh, he didn't have any vices or anything, but he was just set in his own ways. And, you know, we all respected him in the ring. I mean, he was a great technician, great hand, um, yeah. you know, and um, his work was excellent. I mean, I don't know why he never got pushed more than he did, but uh, I think his skills on the mic were, were lacking. That's probably the only reason that they didn't really push him. But, they could have put him with a manager or somebody that could have talked for him, you know, Captain Lou or Freddie Blassie or one of those guys at the yeah. time. They would have got him over real big, too. Al Bannock again. Was, the only person he couldn't get over was, uh, I guess, uh, was it Mighty Joe Young? Mighty Joe Thunder. <laughs> big Joe Thunder. Yeah, right. I, think, I don't know if you remember. He wrestled in 83. I think he wrestled four matches. He was like a big deal like many, many years ago, and I guess he decided to make the comeback. and. He wrestled four squash matches in 1983, and that was it. And even Albano couldn't get him over. But I know Albano could have gotten could have gotten Mike Sharp over. But so after WWF, you, you wrestled briefly in Stampede for Stu, and you actually wrestled Chris Benoit for the Stampede British Commonwealth Mid Heavyweight Championship. So two questions: uh, one, what was it like wrestling Benoit? And um, I know that the Power Twins, I believe, were up there at the same time. I've listened to several episodes of uh, John Arezzi's pro wrestling spotlight those guys always crack me up are they as funny in in you know hanging around with they're funnier in person trust me okay they're, they're two of my very very dear friends and they're living out in las vegas and stuff and they're actually on a big hunting trip down in texas right now doing some hog and deer hunting and stuff all down. right okay but um i just spoke to them actually last week i'm sending them some uh, apb sweatshirts out there to them for for the holidays but, um, yeah, they were great. Um, when I was up in Stampede, I, I left Jacksonville, Florida, and it was like um, I left in January, and it was probably still in the 70s, lower 80s down there. I got up to Calgary, and it was 30 degrees below zero. So I went there with a little Yikes. tan. And uh, as soon as I got off the plane, my tan just uh, froze. I mean, it was like <laughs> I have um, any proper winter um, – you know, clothing. So the first thing I did was I had to run to a, a department store up there and only came with like maybe a thousand bucks in my pocket, you know, to try to get, you know, room for, you know, a couple of weeks, you know, to try to pay as much as I could in advance. So until I got mm. my check from up there, but, um, 
I had to go buy thermal underwear. I had to buy a heavy down jacket. Um, I had to buy some sweaters, some wool socks. I mean, I got a pair of boots up there. It was just so cold. You, know, you had to wear all winter stuff, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, like the stuff that you wear to shovel snow with, you know, like the snow pants and all that stuff. Right. You got, you got, you got a layer. <laughs> I had a layer. Yeah. To just go around there and it was so cold and they put me up in a place called the york hotel and that's like famous all the boys would stay there when they come from out of town rates i mean you could probably get a place for like i think it was like 600 for the month there i think it was like 150 a week or something to stay there and it was like the central location and then bj's gym one of the brothers uh the hearts uh i guess the son-in-law to one of the sisters had a gym up there bj and uh, we used to work out. It was about four blocks away from uh, the York Hotel. So I used to walk there. And sometimes the snow was two, three feet high. And it'd take you a half hour to walk like three or four blocks. I mean, it was so, so terrible up there. The roads, you would walk in the road because they would plow the roads, but they wouldn't take care of the sidewalk, shovel the sidewalks or nothing. So it was, it was you know, some pretty bad conditions up there to work in. Um, they used to take us to the shows in vans and stuff. And a lot of times the vans would break down or, you know, something would happen, or the radiator would overflow, or the, the vans would freeze, the battery would die or something. You know, it, was, it wasn't was a good place. I had to take a railways bus back from Edmonton one time because the van broke down. So, um, you know, it wasn't a, a very great territory that I really liked a lot. Because, you know, there was so much, um, you know, adversity going on up there with the weather. And I just hated the cold, cold weather like that. It was brutally cold. Especially coming from Florida. Right. Oh, it was treacherous up there. I mean, I was afraid to get killed, you know, sliding off the road in the black ice and, you know, the roadways, the conditions. I mean, we spun out a couple of times up there in the van we were in. Larry Cameron was up there when I was working up there. Um, Johnny Smith, Beef Wellington, um, Mike Shaw, Norman the Lunatic, or Bastion Booger, whatever you want to call him. He was there at the time. Um, I went up there with a guy named Bucky Siegler from Atlanta, Georgia. Me and him went up there. The twins were up there. Uh, Don Morocco came in when I was there. And um, one of the Moon Dogs, um, oh, he was Demolition. Um, oh, what was, uh, talking about Bill Eady? No, it wasn't Bill Eady. It was um, Randy Culley. He was up there with us when we were there. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought you meant the t- the team demolition. Yeah, believe it or not, Randy Culley was one of the. He was there before Barry Darso was Bill Eady and. Yeah, it, he was Moondog Rex. Yeah, yeah. So they were demolition, and they uh, they brought in everybody knew it was one of the Moon Dogs, and they knew you know yeah, they one of my favorite side stories when they first debuted demolition they said the crowd was chanting moondog and they even though he and Edie had better chemistry at the time that 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 they swapped him out because the fans just couldn't accept that they were trying to pass him off as somebody else exactly that that's the the real story that was a shoot so that that's exactly what happened but um calgary was a nice place i mean they were going to put me with a program with brian pillman up there but when I did wrestle uh, Benoit, I mean, we had a great match. I mean, we went over a half hour. I put him over real strong and stuff, but it was a pleasure to work with him back then. This was way before, you know, I guess his head got, you know, polluted with all the drugs and whatever. 
to him. But um, we had a good match, but I still can't accept what he did to Nancy and, you know, his son and everything and what he did to sure. himself. I mean, I that's not a good thing. I mean, I met Nancy when I first started out Championship Wrestling in Florida when she was married to Kevin. And right. um, I got to know him pretty good. And when John Rizzi had his uh, IWS, we went over to the Philippines and Singapore. I went on an overseas tour with him. And uh, Kevin and Nancy were there, too. And, you know, we've, I've been friends with Kevin since uh, 1984, so I just got to see him about a year and a half ago. I took him to dinner with me out here in Long Island, and we had a good time. Up and then uh, seen him a couple times on a couple inter, you know, shows up here with Andrew Anderson and stuff. Okay. Quick uh, follow up, if actually funny um, side note: we're recording this on a Tuesday night. I checked while you were talking uh, at the Calgary airport. It's currently twenty six degrees. So warm, balmy. Yeah. <laughs> As as they as they uh, that'd be negative two Celsius for our international friends, um, and that's uh, not the not the coldest it's going to be this week. They're predict they're projecting negative four Celsius uh, on Saturday. But a uh, quick follow up. So you're at the time period you're in Cal you're in Calgary. Benny mentioned. Um, and I'm sorry. I know it's uh, probably like you said not not your most fun time. Be- Benny mentioned you're up there. You've got uh, Benoit. You've got a lot of young talent. They had some some names coming through, and and they, right around that era, they they put put out some serious talent uh, that would become big over the coming years. It's it's kind of cliche at this point. I'm sorry. Steve Blackman was up there too. Yes, before he got before he went to Vince, it, he did. He did. No, that's a good point. I, that's a for, completely forgot about him. But it's kind of cliche at this point to ask, but. When you get there, I mean, at this point, you've you've had the experience, you've traveled the roads, you, you you've worked with a lot of people. You go in and you see these young guys that end up becoming huge names. Did you could you tell of the talent in the locker room? Was it like, hey, these, this guy's going to be big, this guy's going to be oh, big? Yeah. Or was it was there anybody that really surprised you? Well, there was a couple of guys. I mean, Benoit really surprised me because I didn't know he was that good when I wrestled him and he was really good. I mean, he wasn't the tallest guy. He reminded me of dynamite, you know, same mold, you know, same. I know that he, he helped train him, you know, Davey and dynamite and Bruce Hart, you know, the Hart brothers, they all trained Benoit and stuff up there. But, um, Johnny Smith was excellent. Um, he got to tag with dynamite, you know, they said that he was a Davey's cousin, you know, um, he was very good up there. Beef Wellington was very good. Uh, Larry Cameron, was excellent up there. Um, who else was up there? Um, oh, wow. Um, what was his name? He passed away a while back. Um, he went to Nebraska. He was Gary Albright. Gary was there. Uh, Gary actually would, <laughs> when I first got there, uh, he, he offered me a, a tuna fish sandwich. He, he would pack his lunches and stuff. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know my way around Calgary at first, and I didn't bring my, my sandwich on. You know, I didn't pack lunches, you know, like they did. My first uh, couple days I was there, so I, I would, you know, I didn't have anything to eat. You know, I didn't bring anything with me. So he would always pack extra sandwiches, and he gave me a, a tuna. He shared a tuna fish sandwich with me the first uh, day I was there on the road with those guys. So I, I really liked Gary Albright. He was a great guy. Larry Cameron, another guy gone too soon. He was a really nice guy too. They were pushing him up there. Um, 
the Bulldogs were in and out of there uh, when they weren't with Vince. I guess this was right after they had that problem with the Rubos, um, you know, and uh, Donnie, my kid, was doing some of the booking when I was there, too. Him and uh, Bulldog Bob Brown were the bookers up there oh. for Stu at the time. Remember him? So I was only up there, you know, only like maybe five, six weeks. I okay. didn't stay long because I could. Gotcha. So um, as far as, you know, we, I think it speaks volumes to when, when you know, when, when you uh, conduct your life in a certain way, you, you attract other people uh, of the same ilk. And I, I know that you've, you've gotten a number of uh, gigs because of your reputation and pe- because people like you. So you know, the British Bulldogs recommended you for Stampede. Bruno spoke on your behalf with uh, Herb Abrams for UWF. Um, talk about your time in, in UWF, uh, uh, some of the folks you worked with. Well, Georgia Ann Macropolis, she had a thing on Chatterbox. She had her own little newsletter. She was very good friends with Bruno. And Bruno, Bruno, yeah. Bruno knew me yes. When I wrestled with the WWF, and I met him and David, you know, at a, different uh, um, signings like John Arizzi convention and stuff, and Bruno stuff were there and Herb came to the convention and that's where uh, I met Herb Abrams at John Arizzi's convention and uh, he wanted me to you know come on board with the UWF but I had some prior commitments back when they were when they first started out in California and I couldn't really start out there so I said when you come to the east coast I said uh, you know I'll, I'll be available at a certain date because I still had I think I went on a couple overseas tours and then uh I came back. I think I went to Pakistan or I was somewhere with um, S.D. Jones and Mr. Haiti. We went on a three-week tour to Pakistan with Alpha, the Samoan and stuff, and uh, Jose Luis Rivera. So we went there, and then I had another gig. I think it was right after that. I don't know if it was with Rob Russin or Bob Raskin when the AWA, I mean, IW. Um, I was. I had a bunch of shows booked. That. Not, I, was, I guess I was contracted. uh for those dates and I couldn't work with Herb until I was done with the IWA. But um, Herb met me and he liked me and he said he wanted to use me and Bruno spoke, you know, good about on my behalf and he says, book, book this kid, book this kid. And he booked me. So, you know, and Bruno was like a mentor. I mean, I would listen to him and I'd tell stories and I took him out to the Frost restaurant with me, a nice Italian place across from where I used to live in Brooklyn and him and Captain Lou and me and Herb went there and we had a really nice dinner. And, you know, everybody talks bad about Herb Abrams, but Herb Abrams was very, very nice to me and my family. And he was very good to most of the boys. If he liked you, he really liked you. He was excellent with uh, Bruno, excellent with Captain Lou. John Tolis, I mean, uh, the Power Twins, he gave them a, a good push to Steve Wild Thing Ray. So, I mean, uh, he was good to the, some of the boys, but then you hear stories, you know, like he would stiff people with checks or, you know, or he was partying too much. I mean, what he did on the side, you know, it wasn't my business, you know, that was his business, you know, and I would never judge them for what they did. Maybe that's just, you know, who I am, you know, I don't judge people, but, um, you know, I treat people the way I want to be treated. If people treat me good, I treat them better. So that's how I, I was with her, but you know people ask me did herb ever bounce you a check yeah he bounced me some checks and he always made good on them so i don't have anything bad to say i mean he tried you know everybody everybody 
the business wanted to work for Herb Andre the Giant. He was a mm-hmm. couple of tapings out there in California. Rick Rude, Greg Valentine, uh, Honky Tonk, Sid. I mean, you name it. The list goes Jimmy Snuka, all the or uh, Bob Backlund. I mean, every major talent wanted to work for him. Ivan Koloff and Bob Backlund at, at uh, Raw. You know, it was like, you know, that was a, you know, a WWF kind of card, you know, at that thing. Sounds like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Actus and uh, Bob Ork Jr. I mean, he had endless supply of talent, but he just didn't have an endless supply of money. And he didn't have the right people around him behind the scenes to help, uh, you know, bring the promotion to the next level. That, or to that help. Seemed... Go ahead. I'm sorry. But he didn't have, you know, like the, the the people behind him, like with the television, with the marketing end of it. He had the booking and the the, the, the talent, but he just didn't have that, you know, the, the extra stuff, like the marketing. Back then, there wasn't a lot of social media and stuff. So he would have had some of that stuff or somebody that could have booked the towns and, and put people in the seat. That's what he was missing. That seemed to be the... the- Dark Side of the Ring episode that they did on him. That seemed to be the yeah. general consensus is if he had had a social media platform or dedicated, uh, like you said, dedicated booking staff that knew how to set up the venues, he would have been a lot more successful. I mean, he had, you know, look, he went out and he got the MGM grant. And he got them to sponsor the show out there, Blackjack Brawl. I mean, what kind of guy could go in there just with a you know, meeting with somebody and not put up any money? I mean, that's the type of person Herb Abrams was, you know. He would yeah. fall into a pile of shit and come out wearing new boots, you know. That, that, was, <laughs> that was like, you know, I mean, he, you know, he was uh, very well-liked, and he was a joker. And uh, believe it or not, he did a lot for charity, too. I mean, Christmas time, uh, I, I used to run a promotion. Uh, we used to help out. I was vice president of a Long Island Children's Foundation. We used to, you know, go get... Um, gifts for handicapped children and bring up the less fortunate children and stuff like that. And, um, Herb was right there. You know, he would be at all the shows. He would, he would hand out gifts. He would help, you know, he would give UWF shirts out, UWF hats. You know, he spent his own money buying toys for kids. And a lot of people never saw that, but I saw that firsthand. So I respected the man. I mean, what he did on his own time, did he like cocaine? Did he like hookers? Yeah. But, you know, he wasn't married when he was doing all that. Uh, and I'm not his boss. I wasn't his father. You know, I wasn't. I was just a friend. I would I want to condone what he was doing. I'm a family fan. But, you know, if that's what made him happy, so be it, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I again, I, I brought him up earlier and I hate to keep beating him up. We, we had some, you know, we talked about the the wrestlers coming and going and and obviously you had a lot to say as far as money and time. Um, one of the things that comes up a lot and it ties to money and we touched on it earlier is that a lot of wrestlers for one reason or another, uh, they always seem to want to keep stepping back into the ring past their prime. And I, it's kind of been beaten up, beaten to death. We talked about it a lot on the show. I think probably one of the best examples of that or worse, depending on how you want to look at the question is Ric Flair's last match. They had the big spectacle. It was uh, Ric Flair and Andrade, uh, Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal. Ric Flair, he passed out on multiple times during the match. He was slow, kind of sluggish. Um, He claimed he was dehydrated. The story came out later. He was hydrated just with the wrong kinds of fluids. (laughs) Um, 
And it was, it was, I, I, again, I don't want to tarnish the legacy anymore than we've kind of shit on him a little bit tonight, but it was an embarrassment. It was sad to watch. And he's back on AEW, uh, going on social media saying he'll gladly take a bump if they want him to. I'm curious what your thoughts are. It's kind of my last question to you for the night as we get ready to wrap up, but what are your thoughts on the wrestlers that just can't seem to let it go? Well, you know, when I first started, when the first major wrestler I ever wrestled against was Ox Baker. And he was well past his prime when I wrestled him. And I wrestled him at maybe 22 years old, 21, 22 maybe. And he was way in his 60s by then, I would say. Wow. And, um, you know, he was, you know, almost like, you know, with like Mickey Rourke, you know, the wrestler, you know, the movie. I mean, I thought he was spot on with his portrayal of, uh, you know, Randy the Ram, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a guy that you know, was on top. Then he lost everything. Then he's living in a trailer and, you know, sleeping in his van and stuff like that. So right. many guys have done that are doing that right now. Look at poor superstar Billy Graham. He made a lot of money in his business, but, you know. The steroids and, you know, everything took advantage of his body and, you know, knee replacement, hip replacement, ankle fused, um, you know, you know, problems and stuff towards the end of his career and in life, you know, and nobody would, you know, you got a GoFundMe page, you know, it, it, it's sad. It really is sad that these guys like Ric Flair, like you said, he was well past his prime. He should have never gotten a ring for a retirement match. His legacy is maybe tarnished because of that, you know, that that last match. But what he did all those years, you know, he carried WCW for all those years on his shoulders, you know, and his interview skills and, you know, everybody, woo, 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 you know, that's the catchphrase, you know, the woo. But, you know, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be a guy in his 60s or 70s getting in the ring. God bless him, Chick Donovan. He wants to be known as the, the oldest pro wrestler to wrestle a match. He's still wrestling today. I wrestled with him years ago down at Peach State Wrestling, Georgia Champion, I mean, uh, Southern Championship Wrestling. And uh, he's still going and he still looks good. Chick Donovan, the golden boy. And, you know, he, 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 he had a very long, prestigious career down in Georgia and Tennessee. And, you know, he worked. WCW and stuff, and I mean, he was on Georgia Championship Wrestling for a long, long time. And he's going today. At, he's he's got to be in his late seventies, but he wants to get in the world book of records as the oldest professional wrestler. And you know, if that's what he wants to do, God bless him. But he still looks good. And he can still work. But some of the guys got to know their limitations and know when to get out. And um, I got out in 2000. I only wrestled 15 years. And, you know, I didn't want to go and I didn't want to embarrass myself. Or I, you know, I still don't want to do that. People ask me all the time, oh, you could still get back in the ring. I don't want to get back in the ring. You know, it's been 23, 24 years since I've been in the ring. Now, I don't want to go back. I have knee replacement. I had a heart attack. I had quadruple bypass surgery and I'm 60 years old. You know, my body still hurts every day getting up from all the abuse I did those 15 years of my body. That's well said. And I think from the experience, I respect that. Benny, uh, we wrap up tonight. Final thoughts to you? 
Well, Dan, we didn't make any baseball references, so I, I saved it for now. And I wasn't even going to do it, but just, you know, based on, on what Rick just said, you know, I remember one of my favorite things as a young baseball fan was uh, watching Old Timers Day at Yankee Stadium. And I have very vivid memories of, like, this is the late 60s, uh, so 68, 69, and Joe DiMaggio getting up and hitting a ground rule double. And he would have been, like, maybe mid-50s at that time. But it took him about, you know, I, I went out and got a sandwich, and he was still, like, he was, you know, limber, lumbering into second base after I made my sandwich. Um, it just, I, I feel bad because, you know, in his time, Ric Flair was, you know, in the mid-80s, late-80s, you know, probably, like, the ultimate touring world heavyweight champion, both the way he, you know, his interviews, the way he dressed, you know, the 60-minute the, the broadways every night touring, you know, traveling all over the place but I'm, I'm afraid that you know a bunch of younger fans are just going to remember this old drunk and it, like you know rick made, made mention you know the, the, i really believe the guy's tarnishing tarnishing his legacy and i mean there's a time and a place for everything but there's a time where like it, it's past your time and it's somebody else's time and uh you just need to you know you need to step back and give give somebody else the spotlight now you're right. yeah. And you, I mean, you got to pass the torch sooner or later. I mean, people like Harley Race, Ric Flair. I mean, they're they're cemented. Hulk Hogan, you know, uh, some of the three, Jack Briscoe. I mean, you know, all these old timers, Dory Funk Jr., Terry Funk. I mean, all these guys, you know, paved the way for all of us to come in, you know. And then, you know, you got to know when to die. I mean, Terry was still wrestling until he really got, you know, the dementia and all that stuff too. You know, but Terry wasn't doing it as often, you know. Yeah. And he was more hardcore and stuff, and people wanted to come see Terry Funk, you know. Ric Flair, I mean, all those years with WCW and World Championship Wrestling and even WWF, I mean, they wanted to see him. And, you know, he, he gave them their money's worth, you know, while in his prime. But now, you know, you got to know when to get out. If you want to manage, that's one thing, you know, but... You shouldn't maybe be like, maybe commentate or something. Yeah, you know, commentating would be excellent, or yeah. maybe even going on the you know the performance center and teaching the kids how to talk and do interviews, and promos, or teaching right. them. You know, yeah, yeah. like the 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 impact that that Dusty Rhodes had in the early days of NXT, exactly. or William Regal now. I mean, they're great. I mean, that's a that you want to keep it you, you could still hear the guys you know like chris owens and bailey and the girls and talking about dusty and the, the influence that they had mm -hmm. on their you know dallas page you know even you know compliments dusty all the time without dusty Rhodes, there would be no diamond dallas page right you no know? and and, and that, that's the truth you know and and he was my idol growing up you know i've lived in and I always wanted to be like him. I'm, the only regret in my my heart of hearts is I never got to wrestle with him, never got to wrestle against him. I was on the same card as him a lot of times when he came up with the you know Sapphire when they were doing when they put the polka dots on Dusty when he came. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. And I got to see how they, you know, humiliated him a little bit. You know, I never really liked that gimmick for him. He should have never did that, but. You know, maybe he needed the money. I'm, you know, I can't judge anybody. I don't know people's circumstances, but and it's not my place. But you know, I, I thought it was kind of 
humiliating a little bit when they put the polka dots on him. But I guess if he was okay with it, I'm okay with it. Somehow he made it work. <laughs> he not just made it work. He was polka dot. Dusty was one of the biggest stars in the world. Yeah. I mean, if you would have saw Dusty, and I'm sure, Benny, you've seen him, you know, back in the garden when he was, you know, his big feud with Superstar Bill. Oh, Grant yeah, absolutely. What a match that I was. I mean, that was magical. That that that, that was you talk about two matches. guys with charisma off the charts that had the crowd eating Ooh. out of the palms of their hands. Like, that that was wrestling. I mean, that was, you know, that wasn't that was entertainment. That was wrestling. You know, even the Florida Championship, Dusty and the Assassin. You know, Jody Hamilton. I mean, I got to see some of the best matches, you know, growing up as a kid live and on TV. I mean, and that's what really made me love the sport of wrestling, you know, put me where I'm at today. And I thank God every day that I I got a chance to live out my childhood dreams. Very few get to say that. And then, you know, so that's that's good on you. I'm still. No, go ahead. I mean, it's just, you know, like so many guys that I grew up with watching and stuff, they're not here anymore. And some of the guys should have been here a lot longer, you know, if they would have taken a little bit better care of themselves or if we had a, a retirement program set up for the wrestlers, you know, um, you know, insurances and, you know, like just, you know, guys getting taken care of. Every time I hear that, you know, Vince McMahon's billion dollar company, you know, how much would it really cost for them to put up a little bit of money aside for the guys to have a retirement? Yeah, set aside like one percent and like, you yeah. know, you know, but, every gate or dollar or something. Some of these guys are dying homeless and, you know, and um, destitute or don't have, you know, like old age homes or something to live at or families, you know, to take care of. You know, that, that's the sad part. You know, they become wards of the state now, and the state's got to take care of, you know, the guys that we used to look up to and grew up with and stuff. It's just so sad on every level. You're, you're getting $200 million a year just for broad, broadcast rights to Raw. you telling me you can't have a pension program or something? But They should. They should have, you, you know, paid for our insurances. Now these guys are hip replacement, knee replacements, back surgeries, neck yeah. surgeries. You know, all these guys are hurt. Stan Hansen had right. two knee replacements, two hip replacements, shoulder replacement. And he needs his wrist done. And I mean, got- this, you know, these guys, you know, sacrifice their body for the name of the sport, you know, for the sport of wrestling. And get so guys. Now guys are paying, you know, the, the ultimate price, you know, living in pain every day of the, the year, you know. After they retired. Yeah, guys, you so know, I, 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 as the young in here, uh, guys younger, I, I, younger than you and Benny with more metal in them than a toolbox at this point. Oh, yeah. But oh, uh, Rick, I mean, I, I can't. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm no, sorry. I thought, were, I thought you were saying something. No, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. We always love hearing, especially the road stories, and you've had so many good ones. Uh, I mean, we didn't even get to talk about your time in Japan and so many other things. So we're definitely going to want to have you talk to you again in the future. Uh, we'll get in touch with you. But before we let you go, but before we wrap up, uh, any of your fans out there, where where can they where can they find you? 
Well, um, usually on Facebook under my name, Rick Allen or uh, Sandy Beach or Sunny Beach. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put together a little website now with the Sunny Beach website. I just uh, re-trademarked my name. Stuff, so hopefully I'll be out there soon and maybe people could buy, you know, like shirts or T-shirts or uh, hats or beach attire. or If you want to get an 8 by 10 something, uh, they want to put up a little like a store, like an internet store for me. Great. So, you know, some, a couple of my fans talking about doing that. So I've been, you know, hesitant, but, you know, I guess if they want it, I'm, who am I to say no? Absolutely. I love it. Well, Rick, thank you so much. Uh, again, you know, great stories. Benny, uh, is another another great show in the books. we got a lot of fun coming up. It, this is our uh, December episode, uh, the 19th. So, obviously, next week. After be after the holidays. So for everyone listening out there, uh, be it Christmas, Hanukkah, Yule, whatever holidays you have coming up, please enjoy them. We we here at Dan and Benny wish you nothing but the best. Uh, again, thanks. Special thanks for our oh, there's the decorations for our our YouTube and of course the, the tree, Rick's tree in the background there has been wonderful. So uh, happy. Thank you. Guys, Go ahead. Thank you so much on the show. I really appreciate it. Happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Whatever you guys celebrate. And uh, always remember to be kind to everybody, and God bless everybody. That's good advice. I appreciate you guys having me. It's been my pleasure. Very good advice. So, for Rick Allen, for the player himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spasciano. Again, thanks to our friends on YouTube at Monty and the Pharaoh. You see the shirt there behind Benny, uh, ProWrestlingTees.com. Dan and Benny can be heard anywhere podcasts are listened to. So, thank you very much for Benny. I'm Dan Spasciano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Merry Christmas.